0: Uh last week in my passion and enthusiasm in preaching I did in, in I, I put a word in the scripture that wasn't there. And and we hold the Word of God at high value here at Gospel Church. It is his word. Uh, we want to preach what it says. We don't want to be adding our emphasis to it. Uh, if you remember the sermon I was preaching on the armour of God and it is speaking to the church to put on the armour of God together. I put in the word together. The word together is not in that verse. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I remember saying it and I was convicted all week and I was just praying and repenting. I wanted to clarify that with, yous, uh, with you. Uh, you're not meant to say yous, are you, Zaya, but I always do. Um, well, sorry, you'll hear it a lot from me. You'll hear it a lot from me. But I just wanted to repent and say, guys, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner. I make mistakes. If I preach heresy, please uh, come and and pull me up. I believe that that is what the word is saying. It just doesn't have that word in there. Uh, so we don't want to add words to the scripture. Forgive me. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's look at this passage. Actually, let's pray. I ask you to pray for me, and I'll pray for you, and that the Holy Spirit would be moving in our midst. Gracious Father, we come once again as your body as your bride, awaiting you, longing for you. As Paul writes in many places, he had an eager expectation, a sincere longing for the day that you, Jesus, would come. Lord, we pray, come. Come by here. Come now, as your word finished with in Revelation. Please come to a broken and hurting world, to a world that is under the curse of sin, to a world that groans under the weights of this curse and longs for the day when you will restore both heaven and earth. Lord, our church, your church, groans as well. And the Spirit in us groans, calling to you, Lord, saying, fill us with the Holy Spirit, calling to you to say, come. Lord, when we don't know what to say, your Spirit speaks on our behalf. It groans inwardly on our behalf. Lord, I pray that now as we come to, in some ways, weighty topics, but in the way Paul writes, simple truths, which doesn't make sense to us, but Lord, you are a God whose knowledge is greater than ours, whose wisdom is beyond our reach, and whose way is, in many ways, a mystery. But as Paul says in his word, the mystery has been made known to us. Lord, I pray that now as we open your word, make known the mystery to us. Let it lead us to praise your glorious grace, to praise your glory, as it says three times in these 12 verses. Lord, I pray, by your grace, you would fill us to know you more and to want to praise you more. In Jesus' name. Amen. We've been reading 3 to 14. I'll read it again in a moment. We're preaching only from 3 to verse 6. Uh, 3 to 14 might mean that we would be here for a while. Ephesians doesn't exactly start easy. It doesn't start light. It doesn't start in a way that is uh, easy to grasp. But at the same time, it wasn't intended to be dissected. Ephesians is like the mini-Romans, and Romans is where Paul talks in depth about these truths and then expands on them uh, for three or four chapters at a time. In this, we see Paul merely say, "'You are blessed, and here are the blessings.'" And he just states them, verse after verse after verse, and in order that the church would come to a place of praising his glorious grace, praising his glory. So what we want to do as we expand on these 12 verses, or today these three verses, we want to make sure that we don't miss the point of Paul, that his point was to praise his glorious grace, that we would come to this place where these truths that he believed were absolutely true, that we believe are absolutely true, would cause us to worship God and cause us to praise Him. But at the same time, we do want to unpack a little bit so that we grasp some of what they're saying, some of what these truths are saying. Some of them are hard for us to grasp. Sometimes we think these truths are unfair, particularly at the start the first, uh, of these first few verses. So in order to do that, I think we need to just set some background to understand who God is. We always need to come back to understanding God and his attributes. And I just want to give us two verses to help us grasp who God is. So uh, ultimately, God does all things for his glory. Everything. He created the world for his glory. He pursued Israel for his glory. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for his glory. We are saved for his glory. He created us for his glory. Now we may say, well that's selfish, isn't it? well let's just look quickly at Psalm, 9, uh, Psalm 90 verse two "Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever, you, or ever you had form, or before you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God." So a simple verse here that just states one simple truth: before anything else was, there was God. We could also go to Genesis one in the beginning there was God, or in the beginning, God, right? The simple truth that we have is God is the only uncreated being, uncreated thing. He is the only uncreated one in the whole of creation. Therefore, to God, for God to put his glory in anything else, for God to say, trust in this, or for God to say, I love humans above myself, would be idolatry. God cannot give his glory to another, or he would cease to be God. He would sin, and God cannot sin. Therefore, if God is the end of all things, if he is at the far end, he must worship himself as well. He must love his glory. He must praise his own name. He must do things for himself. For it would be foolish for him to say, oh, humans, your best interest is yourself. Because he's life. He's peace. He's love. He's goodness. He is everything we know to be good. For him to say, your best interest is you, would be sin. He has to say, your best interest is me. I am life. I am peace. I am comfort. I am love. So Jesus, our God, we have to first remember when we study weighty doctrines like we're going to, which means beliefs, is that first of all, God is uncreated. And if he is uncreated, everything stops with him. His glory he gives to no other. The second one is in Deuteronomy 29, twenty nine twenty nine, And it says, The secret things belong to Lord our, the Lord our God, but the things that, you, that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. So we've got two things he states here. The first one is that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And then the second thing he says, but the things that are revealed belong to us. God has revealed some things to us, and there's many things he has not revealed to us. Many things that are outside of our capacity because we have a finite brain and he has an infinite brain or infinite knowledge. So when God says, I've revealed what you need to know, we do those things. We accept those things. We live out those things. We trust him with faith which we see so clearly in Hebrews where it says, we trust that God created the world by faith, that he created it out of nothing by faith. So we've got to come to a place where we're comfortable by saying, all things stop with God, all glory is God, everything is for him and nothing happens outside of him. And the second thing is, hey, there's things I'm not going to understand. The secret things belong to the infinite God. He's revealed all I need to know. He's told me the truths that I have to accept. And some of them, some of them I'm going to have to accept with faith. Some of them I'm going to have to accept with a a bit of unknowing about them or being unable to reconcile them. So when we approach the Word, we want to approach the Word with our intellect. Of course, He wants us to study it, but we don't want to get to a point where we're trying to bring God down to our level. I don't want to worship a human God. That's no God that needs worshipping. I want, to an infinite, I want to worship an infinite God, an incomprehensible God. That's the God that is worthy of worship. All right, let's get into Ephesians 3. I'm going to read 3 to 14 again and then rehash 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so that we who were, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's go back to verse 3 and just read those three verses again, 3 to 6. I feel like I should just sit down. It is it is so rich and so depth that we should just keep reading this over and over again for the next hour, because these words give life. And I know Paul instructed Timothy to say, read the scriptures aloud. And I know why, because there's life in the scriptures. But since we are here to hear some preaching, I will preach and do my best to expand on these few verses here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts in the only place you should start with the Gospel, and that is with God. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word blessed in the original means praise. It's actually where we get our word eulogy from. If you've been to a funeral, you'll know that at the funeral someone will share a eulogy declaring the good things that this person has done. I was at my grandfather's funeral not long ago. They weren't exactly declaring good things. But ideally, the eulogy is about declaring the good things of this person. So when we see blessed be the God and Father, he's saying, let's declare the good things of God. And if we're declaring the good things of God, we're declaring the unending goodness of God. Because God has no limit to his goodness. It's where all good comes from. He's the source of all good. In many ways, we could say that God has an extensive eulogy in these 66 books of the Bible because it is all about the one we call God. And Paul here is about to expand and not only go, we've got this one God, but he's got these three persons and they all are unique, but they're all one. Yeah, mind-blowing. Remember, the secret things belong to God, right? He is uncreated, he is incomprehensible. So let's try and grasp that God is beyond us and within himself he can have perfect love, perfect unity, perfect contentment because there's three of him. Well, there's three persons within him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we have this acting out of the work that each one of them done, has done throughout 3 to 14. From verses 3 to 6, today we will speak about the work of the Father. In his foreknowledge, in his divine sovereign, that means in control of all things, he chooses... Those who will be saved. We'll come to that in a moment. Later on next week, we'll look at in Christ, the work he accomplished on the cross through pouring out his blood. He claimed those who would be saved. He worked out their salvation. And by the Holy Spirit, we see him seal us for eternity. Those who are called, those who are chosen will be saved. Those who have been saved will be sealed. And those who have been sealed will enter into glory. There is a certainty of our salvation. And this is where Paul wants us to get to. I am sure I am saved. I'm 100% sure I'm going to be with Christ forever. And he's calling us, blessed be the God and Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ? So we've got our blessing to God to declare all the goodness of God, and then it goes on to say that this God, who's all good, where all goodness comes from, is now blessing us, but not because of our goodness, not because of our merit, not because of our beauty, not because of our work, but because of Christ. Isn't this a beautiful image of the triune God, we've got the first person, God the Father, who is blessed and where all goodness comes from and it is now blessing us through the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Our blessing does not come through our work. Our blessing does not come through our merit. Our blessing does not come because we have got ourselves together. It comes because Christ has himself together. It comes because Christ has worked all things out for us. When he said it was finished on the cross, he meant it was finished, it was complete. So Paul is turning our attentions off ourself, taking us away from being full of ourselves and saying, be full of this triune God. Because from within him, things have come and overflowed to us. We're part of this divine... Uh, Cosmic love that's within God and it's overflowing to us. It didn't happen because of us. God didn't create us because we needed to be created to fulfill Him. No, it's an overflow. Within the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is this love and affection and this blessedness, and they're praising and blessing one another. And because of the blessing of Christ in us, we are blessed through God. Yeah, remember, it's the secret things of God. This is so confusing, I don't even know what I'm saying. I hope God helps fill us and uh, helps us understand. But what is Paul declaring? Like I said, he's not expanding heavily on these things. He's just stating them verse by verse and saying, praise his glory, praise his his glorious grace, praise praise his glorious grace. And he says our blessing in this one verse is with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every blessing spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The blessing that we receive is not one of prosperity. Our blessing is not one of health. Our blessing is greater than that. It's to know the infinite God. The word bless or blessing means to be drawn to God and find lasting happiness or everlasting happiness. So when we think of this, uh, with every spiritual blessing, well, what is that? Every spiritual blessing is to know God. We are, were, not spiritual. Now we are made spiritual by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can know God. So the spiritual blessing that we get is, is not materialism, but spirituality to understand this infinite, worthy God. And where does he sit? In the heavenly places. Our spiritual blessing is sat in the heavenly places. It is where God dwells. It's where we will dwell with him in a new creation of heaven and earth. But then Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to state verse by verse, what are these heavenly, what are these heavenly, sorry, what are these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places? And he starts with the father and he goes to the son and he works through the son's work to the spirit's work until he gets to the point where he says it's the guarantee of our inheritance to the praise of his glory. So as we unpack these spiritual blessings over the next three weeks, let us not forget what it's all about. A statement of truth to lead us to worship Him. There's going to be things we don't understand. Things we struggle with in our minds, but these are here to cause us to praise Him, to praise His glory. Verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The first spiritual blessing that we see is that we've been chosen. Brother or sister, if you are a Christian here, if you call on the name of Jesus, if you believe that he is your savior, you did not choose Jesus. God chose you before you came to choose Jesus. How do I know that? Because it says so, is the simplest answer. We see so clearly, not only in this passage, but others, that you were chosen before the foundation of the world. That means you weren't chosen when someone prayed for you. You weren't chosen when you first heard the gospel. You were chosen before all that, before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, when God was with himself in whatever he was in, delighting in himself, he there in that moment said, I will save you. I will choose you. He made that declaration then, and he said, I will create the world, they will rebel, I'll pursue the world, I'll send Christ to save them, and I will save them. That is that is beautiful, stunningly beautiful, that we should sit back and go, wow. But in our intellects and often in our pride, we sit back and go, no, that's not fair. We sit back and we go, "Oh, that's not fair because some aren't chosen. Some, some people, if, if some are chosen, if some are chosen before the foundation of the world, that means some aren't chosen. But Paul doesn't want us to get to that place. He writes this letter so that we would just read this even as he chose us before the foundation of the world and go, wow. Praise this infinite God who knows the secret things. I don't comprehend it, I can't understand it, but I know He is worthy of worship. His justice is greater than my justice. His greatness is greater than my greatness. His wisdom is greater than my wisdom. I have no problem believing this, that God would choose some before the foundation of the world and not others. But I will explain some things to help us comprehend it. Let's start here. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that you were dead. And most of us know that if we are dead, there is nothing we can do on our own to save ourselves. If we're dead, we're dead. There's no strength in ourselves to raise us from the dead. There's no possibility of coming back to life on our own strength. We are completely lifeless. And the Bible says that in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It also gives Ezekiel a vision in in Ezekiel 37 of a valley of dry bones. Ezekiel's standing in this valley and there's all these dry bones and God asks him this question. He says, Ezekiel, Can these bones live? And Ezekiel responds, only you know God. Only you know God. Ezekiel was content to say, God, these bones that are dry and dead, there's no life in them. I can't bring them back. I know that I have no power to, but you know if you could. They belong to you. The secret things belong to you. And God blows from the four winds and these bones come back together and it says flesh and tendons were put on them. We see from this description is that this is what we were spiritually. Yeah, okay, we're all living. We're all living our life. But we're not acknowledging God or we weren't. We were dead spiritually. We couldn't think of anything but ourselves and even the good deeds that we did had selfish motives behind them. And this is our state. Dry bones, unable to respond to God, unable to call out to Him. We need someone from the outside, someone who gives life to raise us from the dead. So simply put, If God doesn't choose people to be saved, no one is saved. And the world is doomed to hell. But in his graciousness and from the beginning, he planned to choose. He chose Israel over all the other nations. And before that, he chose Abraham. Before that, he chose Noah. He chose Moses to lead the Israelites out of uh, Egypt. He chose David to be king over Saul. He, so, he chose, chose John the Baptist over others. We can see all the way through that God is a God who sovereignly chooses those whom he will save. God is not unfair in his choosing because no one deserves heaven. All have turned away from God. All deserve death and eternal punishment. But God in his grace and mercy planned from the beginning to claim those whom he would call his people. A people he knew would rebel, a people he knew would, he would need to pursue, a people he knew he would need to save, and that people comes from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So for those of us who sit back and say, I think this is unfair. How can God choose some and not others? Romans 9 puts it very clearly that who are you, O man, to speak back to God? Who are you, O man, to speak back to God? God is the uncreated one whose justice is outside of our justice, whose wisdom is outside of our wisdom. We don't understand it, but we know it's fair. We know it's fair because God is where all goodness comes from. We go back to blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is declaring that He alone is where all goodness comes from. His eulogy, declaring His goodness. A hymn says this, I sought the Lord and afterwards I knew. He moved my soul to seek Him. It was not I that found a Saviour true, No, I was found by him. He chose us in order that we would be holy and blameless. In verse 4, before the foundation of the world, he chose us that we would be holy and blameless before him. God's choosing of his people was that we would be a people that were worthy of his kingdom. If we are to be a people that is worthy of his kingdom, we must do away with sin. But we have no capacity on our own to do away with sin. Instead, God says, Christ will be your holiness. Christ will be your blamelessness. He will take on your guilt. He will wear my wrath, which is deserved for you. And you will have his merit of holy and blamelessness. You will have his status of holy and blamelessness. And my wrath will pass over you. So Christian, brother and sister, you are holy. You were chosen to be holy. You were chosen to be blameless. And if you were chosen to be holy, you were chosen to be set apart from the world. If you were chosen to be blameless, you are chosen to not have error in you. Yet it still remains. So by the Spirit, we live and fight day after day to pursue this holiness and blamelessness that our status is kept for us in heaven. We pursue it day by day, being conformed to the image of Christ. But Christian, if you live in willful sin, willful, unrepentant sin, I ask you to examine your life. Because there is conviction. There is conviction from the Holy Spirit. Yes, sometimes we will grieve the Spirit and go on living in rebellion, but it will come. And the evidence of salvation over time is that we grow in the fruit of the Spirit. We praise His glorious grace because He chose us. We praise His glorious grace because He is whole, He made us holy and blameless. And we continue to praise Him through verse 5 as it says, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of of his will so what we see here Paul is stating that we were predestined that means predetermined we were set somewhere before we were going to be there and the second one is it was according to the purpose of his will it is God's will that ultimately governs this world we can say oh I have free will but that would contradict each other's will can all of us have free will if I have free will That means you can't have free will. Only God can have free will because God governs all things, right? One being can have free will. We have a will to make a decision between right and wrong, but we are bound by our limitation that God has put on us. God is the ultimate one who has free will. God is the one who can move our hearts, change our hearts, make us go from death to life. We can't make ourselves go from death to life. Therefore, we can't have free will. Our will is bound by either our sin or our will is bound by the Spirit. Before we were a Christian, it was bound by our sin. We only chose that which was sinful. And now that it's bound within the Spirit, we choose that which is from the Spirit. So it is God who predetermines and God who's... Uh, working out all things to the purpose of his will, which will be the ultimate end. And his ultimate end is that he will adopt for himself children. He will adopt for himself children. And what we need to remember is that this is in love. This is a beautiful doctrine, the doctrine of adoption, that we have been claimed to be children of God, and it's stated throughout John, it's stated throughout most of the Gospels. We see this beautiful image of being outsiders, and being brought in. How beautiful is it to meditate on this glorious picture? Can I give us an example of this that the original readers would have understood? Last week I spoke about how in Ephesus it was a city of success. It was a city of uh, being a great athlete, being a great musician, being a great uh, uh, theatre actor person it was about being a person who was was beautiful who had something beautiful about them and in ephesus if you were born with any sort of defect you'd be taken outside the city and put on a hill babies infants maybe up to 2 years old 3 years old when the defect was to be seen they would take the child put him outside the hill because there was no chance of success There was no chance of this child becoming a someone in their society. Every now and then, a slave trader would trek up that hill and look among the defected children and choose for himself those that could be slaves. And he would walk back down the hill and sell them as slaves. We have an image here of God the Father Walking up that hill and choosing for himself defected children, defected spiritually, but not claiming them as slaves, but rather claiming them as sons. And if we understand the weight of the term sons, he's not deliberately excluding women. He's saying that in this day and age, if you were a son, you have an inheritance. The sons got the inheritance. And he's emphasizing that if you have been adopted into God's family, you have an inheritance that is an internal inheritance. And it will last forever and ever. It's an inheritance that we will receive with Christ. So we have this beautiful image that God does not come and take us as slaves like they know of adoption, the Ephesians, but rather God comes and claims us as sons. Sons with an inheritance. Sons with a hope that we can't, well, with a certain hope that we can't be cut off from the Father. If we are unsure about this predetermining, determining foreknowledge of God who chooses, we need to remember that we can't disconnect the doctrine of election away from the love of the Father. The image that we have of the Father is that He Loves before we were created. He chose before we were created. He loved us before we did anything right or wrong. And that is the same with you. You loved your child before it was born. If you have children, you love them before they were created. And the same is true here. The Father loved us before we were created. The Father loved us before. We were doing anything right or wrong, although knowing that we would do wrong. We were spiritually defected in God the Father, predetermined that He would adopt us. Who chooses to be adopted? The child or the father? Who chooses to adopt? Does the child come up and say, I need you to adopt me? Maybe in some cases, but not in, not in most. It is the family who comes to a place and says, we're going to adopt. I want to go and choose a child that we will adopt and he will be or she will be ours. The beauty of this doctrine that God would choose those to be holy and blameless, that he would predetermine those who he would adopt through Christ to be sons. It had to be through Christ so that we could be claimed as his son, as Christ is his son. If you just want to turn with me to Romans 8.14. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Isn't this an incredible picture? That we didn't get given a a spirit of slavery. That's what they knew. That's what adoption looked like, right? To be a slave. Oh, you got adopted, now you're a slave. It was better than being on the mountain dying. But no, we don't have a spirit of slavery that leads to fear. We have a spirit of sonship which have a certain hope a hope of eternity with the Father. Tim Keller, a pastor in the state, says, the only person that can wake a king in the night for a glass of water is a child. That's the kind of access we have to God. Can we comprehend that? The God of this universe, this one who was uncreated, the one who knows the secret things, says, I'm choosing you not because of your merit, but because of Christ, my son. I'm choosing you to be my son with an inheritance. I'm choosing you to be a child that has an inheritance. We'll go on to read over the next few weeks what Christ did to make us holy and blameless and what the Spirit does to seal us with that inheritance. But let me just encourage you with this verse that Jesus says in Luke 12. He says, Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid, church. Don't be afraid, those who call on the name of Jesus, because He has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. We don't have to come to God in fear. We don't have to come to God like He's going to cut us off because we've stuffed up again or we've stumbled in sin again. No, Christ has dealt with that. We come to Him always as a child. Every single time. Whether we have sinned this week, greatly or small, we're always sinning. But whether it was this point where we feel like we should avoid him, we don't. We come as a child. Always coming as a child to the praise of his glorious grace. And this is how it finishes. In verse 6, what finishes about the father... To the praise of His glorious grace, with which which He blessed us in the Beloved, and it introduces us again to the Beloved One, Christ. To the praise of His glorious grace. What He wants us to understand is that these are truths. Whether you accept them or not, they're truths. They are what the Bible says throughout the whole of Scripture. It says that you were chosen before the foundation of the world. You are predestined. It tells us that Jesus says you did not choose me, but I chose you. It says that the Father has given me sheep that I will call my own. This is what the Bible says. So we have to accept it, whether we understand it or not. And it is to the praise of His glorious grace. It would not be grace if we chose Him. Because how can it be grace if we worked for it? And even choosing is work. And he says this is all to the praise of his glorious grace. He even, it's not even just to the praise of his glory. He's stating an attribute of his. To the praise of his glorious grace. He's saying, how do you understand this? How do you comprehend it? It's because it's a free gift. That's how you comprehend it. That's how you understand it. How can he choose before the foundation of the world? How can he predestine? Because it's a free gift. It's undeserved, unmerited. Praise His glorious grace. Honor His grace. Lift His grace on high. Make known His grace. Declare the goodness of His grace. And it all comes through the Beloved. Through the Beloved, with which He blessed us in the Beloved. Without the second member of the Trinity, there is no choosing. There is no predestining. There is no sonship. It is through Christ. You know, we can see all the wonders of the Old Testament. We see it through Israel. Ten plagues of God's mighty hand driving them out. They still didn't believe. Making, giving them a king, they still didn't believe. Prospering them in a land, they still didn't believe. They still turn to other idols. They still turn to worship other things. We could see Jesus come down and do miraculous things and we still won't believe until the Holy Spirit comes upon us, wakes us from our dead dry bones and gives us life. We have evidence, so clear evidence throughout the whole Old Testament and the life of Jesus that no matter what sign we see, no matter what power from heaven we see, we will not believe because we're dead in our sins. And we are only made alive through the choosing of the Father, the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, and the empowerment of the Spirit to be born again and repent and have faith. Oh, praise His grace. Praise His glorious grace, church. It's all we have, day after day, to come to Him as a chosen son and say, Father, I'm at the end of myself. Father, I'm at the end of myself, and all I have is you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Praise your name.